Welcome to Harper Academic Calling. Our podcast is designed to give educators, students, as well as every reader, a behind-the-scenes chat with a range of our authors, from well-loved favorites to up-and-coming debut writers, about their books. Harper Academic calling Gregory Maguire. Gregory is the New York Times best-selling author of numerous novels, including After Alice, Confessions of an Ugly Stepsister, and the Wicked Years series. His latest novel, Hidden Sea, dives into the origin story of the Nutcracker through his creator, Herr Drosselmeyer. From the dark secrets of Drosselmeyer's childhood to the moment he presents the Nutcracker to Clara as an old man, the novel paints a detailed and complex portrait of Drosselmeyer against the backdrop of 19th century German romanticism. We spoke with Gregory for some insight into the heart of the novel, as well as his process in conceptualizing the story. So joining us on the phone right now, we have Gregory McGuire, author of Hidden Sea. And Gregory, thanks so much for being with us today. It's my pleasure. Um, so to start us off, this story, um, it's about the origin of the Nutcracker. So what got you interested in that story, the story of the Nutcracker and Drosselmeyer? Well... I don't know about you, uh, Michael, but I always found the ballet of the Nutcracker to be both uh, compelling and magical on the one hand and mm-hmm. kind of bipolar on the other. <laughs> I mean, I, I could never really make uh, twinned in my mind the, the fabulous adventure story in the first half where Clara becomes miniature and with the Nutcracker battles uh, the King of the Mice with the kind of, it's a small world after all, kind of tour of, of nations that occupies the second half of the ballet, <laughs> uh, with all that great music by Tchaikovsky with the, the Russians and the Chinese and, and the North Africans and I don't know uh, who else it is. But the two parts never seemed to make sense to me. Mm-hmm. So I'm always compelled toward a story to think, what is broken in this story and how can I use my imagination to fix it? Mm, interesting. Um, so was it always going to be a story about um, Drosselmeyer, about his life, about him making the Nutcracker? Or did you ever um, think about doing it about the character of the Nutcracker himself? Well, I, I was always interested in, in Drosselmeyer because the Nutcracker, it seems to me, is just an avatar of the toy makers. He's a puppet, really, in a, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. And it occurs to me that just like the Wicked Witch of the West from The Wizard of Oz, Drosselmeyer is an imposing and mysterious figure about whom little is said, including where does he get the source of his power? How is it that he's the one who has the capacity to give a magic nutcracker to this girl at just the moment that she needs it in her own uh, short life on Christmas Eve? that sort of question about the agency of artists to give us what we need at just the point that we're ready for it was the motivating uh, sort of motor for the story of Hidden Sea. After all, Drosselmeyer is a toy maker, so he is an artist no less than uh, Tchaikovsky was in writing the music for the Nutcracker Ballet, or E.T.A. Hoffman was in writing the original story, The Tale of the Nutcracker and the Mouse King. Mm-hmm. Or you yourself in writing this book. 
Well, I'd like to think I'm an artist, but <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll I'll settle for being a short order cook if people don't if people just want a nut omelet. You know, <laughs> I'm happy to try to whip one up. <laughs> um, so you say uh, little is known about Drosselmeyer. Um, what did you have to go on in terms of creating his character? Was there any um, information about there at all um, about this character, or did you really have to come up with a lot of this on your own? Well, I came up with almost all of it on my own. The only thing, uh, the only clues that I had is that with his name, Drosselmeyer, he clearly was German, mm-hmm. uh, he, he's often pictured uh, with an eye patch over one eye. And I thought, how interesting. What does that mean? Where A, what's the nature of his particular blindness? And and B, how how is it that somebody who is blind in the terms of the uh, you know, the world at large can possibly see, maybe through his blind eye, what the rest of us can't see, which is that the world is really magic too, as as well as being actual. The third thing that I had to go on is simply that no mention is ever made of him having a a Madame Drosselmeyer and all the little Drosselmeyer kids. <laughs> so I I I could have invented them if I'd wanted, but the very fact that they weren't there, that he is seen to be a solitary character, much the way do you remember at the beginning of The Hobbit? You know, Gandalf comes in. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, to, into the life of uh, Bilbo Baggins and sends him off on his journey. Well, nobody ever talks about, you know, Mama Gandalf. <laughs> all the little in, Gandalfs. Back in Gandalf, yeah, and all, and all the little Gandalfs. Um, so the very fact of his loneliness and his isolation and probably his being single, uh, again, made me think, what is it about being separated from what might back then and might now be considered maybe the normal course of events, which is to be to be paired and, and, and generative, second. What is it about that isolation that also might power artistic vision? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that um that sol- solitary um nature, the loneliness, it's very prevalent throughout the book through this character. Well he's a sad he's a sad character, but mm-hmm. he, I, I model him on any number of artists, especially writers who have given us over the years pictures of lands that we can't see with our own two eyes. And by that I mean, look at Lewis Carroll, who who gave us Wonderland Mm -hmm. that none of us can ever forget now with the Red Queen and the the Mad Hatter and the Cheshire Cat, etc. Lewis Carroll never got married. Lewis Carroll may never even have fallen in love with an adult man or woman, for all we know. The few pages in his journal that might have talked about that have been ripped out by his heirs. All we know about him is that he was single, and he had an uncommon capacity uh, to twig in, to clue in to the imagination of a child. The same is true for J.M. Barry, the author of Peter Pan. J.M. Barry gave us Neverland, Never Neverland with its Mermaid Lagoon and Captain Hook's pirate ship and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. J.M. Barry was married for a while, but he was uh, divorced by his wife, as I understand it, for lack of uh, connubial capacity, let's call it, uh, for a you know, for, for family audience. And he, too, had an, an unerring ability to get down to the, the knee-high level of small small boys playing with sticks and stones at the edge of a pond in London and to invent with them 
the story of Neverland and to give it to them. So I like the notion that people who are otherwise compromised, artists who are otherwise compromised, can nevertheless be the conduit through which the rest of us receive maps of a stimulating other world that we really need for our own psychic health and well-being. Mm-hmm. And yet in all of this, he has um, Felix as this um, sort of companion throughout the novel. How, did, how does he work into all of this? Felix, uh, and this is not to give too much away because anybody who reads the book is going to know that eventually uh, Drosselmeyer is going to have to come in touch with the little girl, uh, Clara, Mm-hmm. Uh, or um, or Marie, as she's known in some versions of the story, um, he's going to have to come in touch with her. So I invent that her grandfather, Felix, was a kind of boyhood or early um, early adulthood chum of uh, Drosselmeyer's. Maybe his only real chum. Maybe the only person that he came close enough to to feel a kind of real and reciprocated affection. He had other uh, crushes, let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, he idolized um, a married woman, you know, almost to distraction. But Felix was his friend, and Felix was the one who seemed to know who he was and, and be as ready as, as one could be to give back as much as was given to him. It, in the end, was maybe maybe not as fruitful a friendship as both of them might have liked, because that happens in life. Uh, but Felix did start Drosselmeyer off on the road to self-discovery, and it was that self-discovered person who was able to help Felix's granddaughter, Clara, when the need was greatest. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about um, your research process going into this. Um, So obviously there's the source material, uh, but then the novel's also very heavily grounded in... um, the time and place it's in. Um, so I'm sure there was a lot of historical backdrop, too. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes. I did. The novel is, is mostly set in Munich and on the shores of uh, Lake Constance, which is uh, pretty much lies between uh, Germany and Switzerland. I think there's a thin belt of the southern shore of Lake Constance that's still Germany, but basically it's, it's a kind of border lake between Germany and Switzerland for all practical purposes. And uh, the story takes place at the sort of the height of the first wave of German romanticism, which is in the first couple of decades of the 19th century. The Grimm brothers were prowling around in the Black Forest, uh, interviewing people and writing and publishing uh, those Grimm fairy tales that have really become the Bible, as it were, for uh, people who care about children's writing for the you know, 200 some years since I guess just about 200 years since now that I think of it mm-hmm. uh, and also the romantic poets in England were taking a great deal of encouragement and inspiration from people like Goethe in Germany and, and others uh, so I wanted to set my story at the very beginning of the romantic period indeed before those people I talked about, Lewis Carroll and the great high fantasists of the mid-19th century in England, before those fantasists wrote. I looked at the terrain. I went to Germany. I went to the small town of Meersburg. Uh, I took photographs and I did drawings and I interviewed people and I walked around the city's streets and I looked at the age of buildings to make sure that I could describe them correctly. Uh, But I also looked at the influences 
on early 19th century culture in general. And while people feel as if German folk culture that maybe reached its apotheosis in, in Wagner uh, was uh, sort of seeded itself, as it were, what I discovered in thinking about uh, the influences on early 19th century Germany is that the great interest in Greek mythology that was uh, part of civilized life all over Europe really was strong in Germany, in Berlin, and also in Munich. And so I began to put together the notion of a, a sort of uh, story culture or a mythology that maybe had gone underground for a thousand years and was beginning to blurt into life, have a second flowering in Germany. And it was a, a, a kind of an ancient Greek mythology that was disguised now as German Romanticism, where every living thing had spirit and force in the same way that in ancient Greece, the rivers and the trees and the stones and the very sky and the seas all had their own gods and in and inspiriting natures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm happy you brought up the um, the Greek mythology. I loved how that was incorporated into um, how this story sort of winds up without giving too much away. Um, yeah, it gave it a really grounded sense. Well, I'm happy. I'm happy you thought so, and because I I am, uh, you know, I'll, I'll accept the mantle of being a a writer anyway, even if it would be a bit hubristic of me to call myself an artist. But I do like to write stories, and I will tell you, uh, Michael, that about 25 years ago, right about the year before I began to write my novel Wicked, about the Wicked Witch of the West, which of course is the book for which I'm best known at this stage of my life, uh, I was trying all kinds of things to see what was going to take. It's like sort of like striking matches against different surfaces to see which one is going to flare up. Mm -hmm. Uh, And at a certain point, way back then, 25 years ago, I tried to write a a, a picture book text called The Little Lost Forest. And Mm -hmm. I never could get more than about a page and a half of it because I didn't have a plot for it and I didn't know where it was going. I didn't know why it was lost. (laughs) I didn't know how it was going to be found. I didn't know anything about it. But I stuck those pages back in my files of uh, bits and pieces and scraps and odds and ends. And then as I was beginning to write Hidden Sea, I just happened to be clearing out some file cabinets and I came upon that. And suddenly my recent trips to Greece and my experience of the magic that is, say, Olympia in the Peloponnesus, where the Olympic Games were first mounted mm-hmm. and had their apotheosis, the magic of those scenes and landscapes and the story of the Little Lost Forest, such as I had tried to invent 25 years ago, suddenly came together in my head and combusted. It was the idea striking against the right surface. And so the Little Lost Forest, after 25 years, wasn't really lost anymore. It had wandered into Hidden Sea and it was going to be a major part of what motivated that story. Mm-hmm. That's fantastic. Um, yeah, there are these um, themes running through the book um, about how we tell stories um, and our memory and things like that. Yes, well, we carry we carry stories in every possible shape and size 
in our subconscious. Sometimes they're complete. Sometimes they're, you know, complete epics about, you know, how I managed to get through high school, which with, you know, a nice bottle of wine and 40 minutes, you can regale a whole table, <laughs> with, you know, with, with amusing trajectory from first day of high school to graduation day. But there are other times we have stories that are simply a kind of visual image, like, oh, somewhere there was a, a blue stone that was sitting at the bottom of a red vase. How did it get there? How did I notice it? Where was that stone? Where was I? Why did I even look inside an empty vase to see a blue stone in there? And these images are also stories, but they need to be uh, they need they need to be examined. They, uh, you know. Um, Sherlock Holmes needs to get on the case and find out why did you ever see a blue stone in a red vase and what what does that mean? What might it have meant when you first saw it and what does it mean to you now? That's really where stories come from, I think, those two questions. What did you used to know and what does it mean to you now? Because mm-hmm. um, Drosselmeyer, his, um, the incident early in the book um, where the tree falls... Um, his memory of that and the way he sort of tells that story to himself and to others really changes as the story progresses as he gets older. I'm so glad you noticed that. And he doesn't, he begins to think, oh, it's just a story he might have told himself at one point mm-hmm. to explain for himself how his eye happened to get gouged out and why he doesn't really seem to have any parents or have kind of come from some mothy childhood about which he can remember very little. Uh, we all do tell stories about our origins in that way, making the best sense we can of them on the basis of what we know at the moment. One of the wonderful things about reading fiction and why one can go back to reading fiction is that even if you read a book like Hidden Sea this year and you go back to it in five years from now, you'll be a different person because you'll know more about the world than than you know in 2017 and it will reveal a different set of mysteries to you I think and have a different set of meanings Um, certainly that's how I read and I go back to things that I read 40 years ago and continue to find small treasures and revelations that I had never noticed before all right, off to mark my calendar. Five years from now, reread <laughs> Hidden Sea. <laughs> you, you can do it in four years if you're a fast reader. All right. <laughs> um, so, Gregory, I want to ask you, um, and this is more of a broader question um, about you as a writer in general. Um, so, obviously, Wicked has been incredibly successful for you. Um, so, when you go to write other things beyond Wicked, um, in your head, how do you sort of get past the fact that, you know, a lot of people know you for Wicked um, and really try to break free of that shadow? Well, it is a difficult, uh, it's a difficult shadow to, to come out from under. I, I completely agree with you. I call it the great green shadow uh, <laughs> of, of Elphaba. Uh, now, I'm happy to have that shadow because uh, the popularity of that book has given me a, a, a great and um, very welcome readership for almost all the rest of my work, and who couldn't be grateful for that? Uh, on the other hand, there is going to be a way that Wicked is always going to define me, and when it comes my turn uh, to cross um, you know, over the water into the magic land of, of eternity, uh, I know that if anybody bothers to write me a eulogy or an obituary, it's going to start with you know the author of Wicked, 
and a bunch of other books. Um, my, my, one of my uh, dear friends and muses was the American artist and illustrator and, and uh, writer Maurice Sendak of Where the Wild Things Fame, of course. He died about five years ago. And he used to say to me, you know, Gregory, <laughs> you know, I've done 100 books. By the time, I'm, by the time I croak, I'll have done 120 books, 125 if I'm lucky. And I know that when I go, they're all going to say, the author of Where the Wild Things Are, the Wild <laughs> Thing is Dead, you know, and they're not going to pay attention to my other books. And then he'd, there'd be a pause and he'd say, on the other hand, they're going to say something at least. <laughs> and that's sort of how I feel. Well, you know, so they're going to say the author of Wickedness, you know, ding dong, the author's dead. <laughs> but on the other hand, they're going to say something. And the fact that the Wicked Witch has shed her green shadow over the rest of my career has really been almost entirely a joy. Mind, I've been very lucky, Michael, because at just the point that Wicked really began to go kind of stratospheric uh, in terms of its readership and the attention paid uh, to it, uh, it was just about the time that I was adopting my the first of my three children. And three three infants and three toddlers and three, you know, early grade school kids have no interest in the ego needs of their parental unit number two. Uh, all they care about is whether there are Cheerios. And if there aren't Cheerios, we'll betide you. So I think in a lot of ways, having had small children at home at the point where the influence of such a big success might really have sort of capsized me as an artist. I think that was all very healthy for me. So it hasn't been quite as hard to escape from the green shadow as um, as you might think. I've been very lucky that way. Mm, that's really great. Um, and you should definitely take that Maurice Sendak impression on the road. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he was saltier with it, but I can't, uh, I can't bring myself to say the four-letter words that he would say. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, Gregory, we just have one more question for you. Uh, yep. so this is a question that we ask all of our guests. Since this is primarily geared towards educators, administrators, and their students, who was your favorite teacher? Oh, my Lord, what a very good question. And of all the questions that I've been, a I've been, um, I've been asked before, I'm not sure I've ever been asked that one. Well, I'm going to say... A do you want a, a, a like a, a teacher before a high school graduation or a teacher after? Does it or does it whoever matter? whoever you think doesn't even have to well, be in a school setting. Okay, the 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 um, in fact, I had a college professor when I was doing my doctorate at Tufts University, who I think is is no longer with us. I'm pretty sure he died. His name is was Jesper Rosenmeyer, and believe me, if Jesper, if you're still alive, and I'm confusing. Um, uh, your the dates of your life with one of your colleagues who has died. Please accept my apologies and go on to live a long and happy life. But um, Jasper Rosenmeyer, of all things, taught Puritan and American literature in the doctoral program that I was in. Now, I only took that course because I was obliged to take a course uh, in English literature before uh, 1800. And I thought, oh, well, I live in New England. You know, I live in Massachusetts. I suppose I yeah, I suppose it would be easier to take Puritan in American literature than, say, Shakespeare or Milton or someplace like somebody like that. Uh, so I took this course thinking it would be dry as dust, and Jesper Rosenmeyer taught me that the Puritans were the most fabulous and passionate people uh, that 
uh, one could hope to come across in literature. They were they were really the original castaways on a on a desert island as it were, as it was, or that's how they saw themselves. And so everything that they did seemed of of immense and pious importance. It taught me a number of things. It taught me how to look at American history as if I were an anthropologist, which I hadn't known how to do before, and that's a great skill for any writer. But it also taught me about the roots of what we call American exceptionalism, that if people came across the ocean expecting never to go back and believing that God had ordained their journey and was going to give them strength to withstand their ordeals, and the ordeals were were vast in the 17th century, uh, it is not so hard to understand why all these centuries later, we as Americans continue to position ourselves as the most important nation in the world and as the nation in the world that has the ear and the approval, the nihil obstat, if you will, of God himself. Uh, to learn that through the readings of the Puritans is to make what happens in American politics, even this very year, much, much more understandable. And I will always be grateful to Jesper Rosenmeier at Tufts University for having uh, brought me to embrace the literature that I thought I would detest the most. That's great. Well, Gregory, thank you so much. This has been delightful. Michael, it's been a real pleasure for me. Thanks so much for ringing, and I appreciate uh, the kind invitation to join you. Not a problem. Take care now. All right, you too. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Harper Academic Calling. Subscribe on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite third-party app for more episodes. And be sure to visit us at harperacademic.com for more information about this and other great books.